Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you. Colossians chapter 4, for the final time. Colossians 4, and in just a few seconds, I'll begin reading in verse 12 to the end of that chapter, the end of the book. It's wonderful to see you. If you're new, my name is Joe Franzone, and I serve here as a pastor. Wonderful to see you. Glad that you've chosen to come this morning. When we're done, by the way, if you have any questions about Jesus, the Bible, or what you heard, I would count it a privilege to speak with you. I'll be hovering around here when we're finished. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse 12, chapter 4, Colossians, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's, let's bow together and, and seek the help that we need. Love before the dawn of time, chosen by our maker, hidden in our savior. We are his and he is ours, cherished for eternity. Our gracious God, it is to you alone that we now look. Thank you so much that in your mercy you've allowed us to finish this word from you. I am far better for it, Father. I believe all of us are. May we now be given the grace that we so desperately need to finish strong for your glory, for the good of your people, for the honor of Christ's name, and for the good of the outsider. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. And only for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if your Bible is open, we come now to, in many ways, the very end of a journey. A journey which began, believe it or not, in April the 11th, 2013. That was the very first time we opened up this book. And so we had Christmas, a few vacations, and bits and pieces of other things. But here we are, all spared to finish this out. Now, it is very good to finish things, isn't it? It's good to start something and to see it rightly to the end, to be faithful to the end. Now, as you may know, this evening, a professional football Super Bowl will be played. And I say that because growing up as a young boy in Miami, Florida, at that time, the Miami Dolphins for a number of years were quite good. They were so good that they were even given a nickname to their defense, and and the nickname was... The no-names. And the reason why that name was given to them was that although they had an undefeated season and although they, they went to the Super Bowl, nobody really knew anything about these defensive players. They, they were not like celebrity material. They just went out week by week and quietly did their job. And they did it so well that what they did has never been duplicated before. And I suspect... My guess is it probably won't be. Now, I say all that to you because in much the same way, these names we've been learning about these past two Sundays 
were to many of you I talked to after the sermon, they were essentially no names. You didn't really know anything about them. You didn't really know about Tychicus and Onesimus and Aristarchus and Epaphras. You were just surprised that I could actually pronounce them. And so when you saw those names, perhaps you just skimmed over them and considered them no names and you wanted to get on to other things. But as we've taken the time week by week to go over these names, we find that these no names to us before mean a whole lot more to us now. They were in many ways heroes of the faith. They were examples to us all of how we were to do ministry in the Lord. And that was our key phrase last time because all ministry is to be done in the Lord. Nobody in this group was freewheeling it here. Nobody was following their own mind and doing their own thing for Jesus. No, they were in the Lord, verse 7, chapter 4. They were fellow workers, verse 11, for the kingdom of God. And here's the issue. If they don't do what they do, Paul could not do what he did. And the command of Jesus to go and tell so that he could, he could save and build his church would be ignored. But since Jesus is king, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, it's never wise to ignore him, and it's always right to obey him. The lesson for each of us, I think, is that many times the word of God comes with, with large degrees of clarity in, in the most unlikely places. I mean, who knew these 12 verses would be so helpful? I mean, frankly to me, they've been very, very convicting. And they serve to remind us again and again that it's, and please listen, it is in the ordinary routines and in God's ordinary people that God is pleased to work. We hear on occasion in Christian circles of a person convinced that God is calling them to, to some stunning work in some stunning, stunning place. And maybe this is so, but it is equally so that every work in the Lord is a stunning work, no matter what it is in the Lord. And it's equally so that the church of Jesus Christ, this local assembly, is a stunning place. Why? Because the church is the body of Jesus Christ. Because the church is not our church. It's Jesus' church. Acts 28.20, he purchased it with his own blood. Therefore, what we do to her, the church... And what we don't do to her, the church, is what we actually do and don't do to him, Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And so the church is to be the chief place where maturity and obedience and the proclamation and application of the scripture unfolds. Now, I say all that to say, I beseech you in Jesus' name. As you walk around all those ministry tables set before us on this Lord's Day, find a work in the Lord. If you don't have one, find a work in the Lord that you can just give yourself to. Now, the key word that comes out of all of this as we consider these final four, five, six verses is faithfulness. In fact, I looked up the word this morning just to kind of get a better grasp of it and, and I looked up a definition that said faithfulness true to the truth. Kind of like that, true to the truth. So as you would guess, we have three, three points I'm going to do my best not to have three points next Sunday. But anyway, I'm getting tired of three points. But anyway, that's just me. But, sorry. So the first one is faithfulness in prayer, verse 12. And so you're going to see the name Epaphras there. And in Epaphras, we have a model of faithfulness in general, but prayer in particular. And I say that because as you think about Epaphras, you'll remember that he heard the gospel preached by Paul somewhere probably in or near Ephesus. So at about 100 miles uh, west of Colossae. 
So he becomes a convert. What do faithful converts do? Well, when we read our Bible, we find that faithful converts immediately have conversations about what faith in Christ has done to them. That's Andrew finding his brother Simon Peter, telling him immediately of Christ. That's Philip finding Nathaniel. This is John's Gospel, chapter 1, near the end. Philip finds Nathaniel and immediately tells him, we found him. We found the Messiah. And so the Bible gives us a picture of converts being true to the truth, being faithful in that. And that's just what Epaphras did. And out of Epaphras' faithfulness, a church is planted. That's how churches are planted. The gospel is proclaimed and God builds his church. And why is that so? Well, it's so because, and listen carefully, God's work done, done God's way will never, ever lack God's blessing. Therefore, after he leaves Ephesus, he goes back to Colossae because verse 12, he's one of them. And he goes back no longer as a resident, but now as an evangelist. And he takes the given work and he moves it forward. And the name of Christ is honored in these three cities in the Lycus Valley. So not only was he faithful in his conversion, he was also faithful to exercise his gifts. You probably don't remember this, but way back in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul said that the Colossians learned the gospel from Epaphras. So in other words, he preached the gospel, he explained the gospel, and he taught the gospel to, to them. He kept nothing to himself. And here's the key. He kept everything on Jesus. Now, if you're thinking that is so, so refreshing, he's not giving them some religious techniques that they think they need. He's giving them Jesus. He's not causing the immature to hyperventilate, if you would, because there's some new other thing that that is supposed Christian secret to get things done, as if somehow God set us up short in our conversion. I remember about a month and a half ago, I read this quote from Goldsworthy. I'm going to read it again. To say to our congregation what they should be or do and not link it with the clear exposition of what God has done in Christ about our failures to be and do perfectly as he wills is to reject the grace of God and to lead people after, to lust after self-help, self-improvement. And see, why does he say that? Because, because The false teachers come and say, there's something extra, there's something more, there's something left out. See, to lead people to lust after self-help and to lust after self-improvement in a way, says Goldworthy, to call a spade a spade in a way that is godless. Subsequently, as Epaphras preaches Christ, he encounters false teachers. You always will. Self-willed individuals with their own mind on things and they have corrupt instruction. And so they go around saying, he's doing it wrong, he's saying it wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong. So what does Epaphras do? Well, he stays true to himself, and he's faithful to confirm the truth. And what he does is he takes his gospel and and takes a very long journey to Rome to find Paul in a prison and ask Paul, here's my gospel, Paul. Is this the gospel? Hence, verse 12, Epaphras, who was one of you, sends his greetings. So as Paul is writing this letter from prison, somehow Epaphras finds him and he is with him. Now as you think about those things, is it any wonder that Paul, after listening and watching Epaphras, because that's how it really is, right? You don't really know someone until you're with someone, with them, with them, right? So he's watching Epaphras and he's listening to Epaphras. And then verse 12, he gives this glowing approval of his work. He sees him, verse 12, as a servant of Christ Jesus. 
In other words, that's how Epaphras functions. He's a Jesus man. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. What does Jesus want? What does Jesus say? He doesn't fall foul of, of reacting to everything with himself as the first of every line and the first of every thought. No, he's a slave of Christ. He knows that he's been, 1 Corinthians 6, he's been bought with a price. Now, as you think about these things, if you were going to be a servant of anyone, wouldn't it be Christ? I mean, that's the one, that's number one, that's the one I would want to be. And I have, my, in my mind, I always picture Epaphras bowing down on his knees, praying and saying something on order of, oh, great king, first century language, right? Oh, great king, what is your bidding? What, what would you like me to do? So thinking about all that, when it comes to the necessary pastoral work of prayer, we find Epaphras faithful in that. You can see that in your Bible there. So this is, you throw this all around and he says, well, he's a faithful convert. He's a faithful evangelist. He's a faithful servant. He's faithful with his gifts. He's faithful to find the church, truth. He's faithful to defend the truth. He's faithful to defend the flock of God from error. And now as a leader in the church, he's also faithful in prayer. And so Paul says of, says of him, he's always wrestling in prayer for you. Now, the Greek word that Paul used there is the word agonismai. And we get our English word agonize from it. And so this word is dripping with feeling and agony and struggle and, and concern. So we have to stop and ask ourselves, what do we know of agonizing prayer as we, as we think about our own personal prayer life? Now, we tend to want to make things functional and easy and easier to do. And that is just beautiful. That's a wonderful thing. However, when it comes to prayer... Because of prayer's very nature, it's, it's not always that way. It's a struggle. It's a struggle to pray correctly, especially if you watch over people as, you know, parent to child or church pastor over the flock of God. Jesus said to his disciples, could, could you not pray one hour? Can you pray one hour? And apparently they couldn't. They fell asleep. Paul says of Epaphras, he's, he's always pastote. That's the Greek word. Pas all tote time all the time in other words it's just part of him he gives himself to strenuous agonizing intercessory prayer so what does that look like well let me tell you what it, it, it's at least this he's thinking hard about everyone he's thinking hard about their very lives he's thinking about their future and their families he's thinking he's thinking about their children now their little children now knowing that one day they'll grow up to be teens and young adults and he's already started that process in prayer and he's thinking about false teachers. And he's thinking that they could go home and they can get on the internet and listen to all kinds of crazy stuff. God help them. God defend them from all that foolishness. And he's asking God to grow them up and ground them in the gospel so that they rely on it every day. And then that they will persevere to the end. That they won't be like Demas who, who, who left for the pleasures of the world. And loved ones, that is a large part of what biblical pastoral ministry is. It's the same way with Jesus, right? Jesus agonized in the garden, same word. Struggled, tension, sweating on a cold night. Think about that. Jesus sweating on a cold night. And if you think, that, and then you say, well, that's where the real battle is, isn't it? Yes, it is. On your knees, in Jesus' name, praying. That was Jesus. He was praying. So that on the cross, he would endure and he would be victorious so that salvation doors would be flung open. And the second person of the Trinity thought it best to, to take the time to pray 
before he was brought into that occasion. So we'd have to ask ourselves the question, what do we know of agonizing prayer? Epaphras is a good shepherd. He prays constantly and he prays earnestly for the church. Why? Verse 12b, so that they may stand firm in all. Paul loves this word. He uses it many times in Colossians. All, all the will of God, mature and fully assured. That's, that's every pastor's genuine longing for his congregation. Stand firm in all, not some, all the will of God, mature. They'll be complete and assured of the gospel truths. Put a Christian from West Cohasset anywhere in the world for the sake of Christ in the Lord, right? Put a Christian from West Cohasset anywhere in the world for the sake of Christ in the work of the Lord and they'll be just fine. They'll be just fine. That's what he's praying. Now, I knew a man who was a drill sergeant. He was my scuba diving instructor. Isn't that a dangerous thought to know that I can scuba dive? But anyway, he, he, was, a, he was a drill sergeant during the Vietnam War. And he told me, he was a wonderful man, by the way, but, but he told me that many of the recruits would, would constantly ask him, you know, why do we have to get up early? And why do we have to wear the uniform that way? And why do we have to do all this training? And why do we have to do the same thing over and over again? And why do I have to run with this stupid thing on my back? And he, he said he would try to explain to them, but it was to no avail. He told me, they were like little babies. But then he said this, the first time, they actually go into battle and shots were fired over their head. All those questions ceased. And everything they did, it all made sense. And beloved, listen, in much the same way, in the church of Jesus Christ, if we don't understand this, if we ask those kinds of questions, dissatisfied with the good answers, then something is lacking. We've never been in actual battle. Something's immature about us and there's much wrestling in prayer to be done by your leaders and by yourself. And you'd want to say as you think things through, don't you know there's a war on? Don't you know there's a battle between good and evil? Don't you know there are so many lost? Don't you know that there's hundreds of religious scoundrels who would love for you to buy in literally and figuratively to their wretchedness and stupidity under the disguise of Christian ministry? Don't you know that? In the dead middle of World War II, and I apologize for the war stories. Uh, two men fighting in a bar. I read this in a biography on Winston Churchill. But two men are fighting in a bar. bar. They're not in the battle. And they're fighting over sugar and boiled eggs. So the, bar, you know, the barmaid comes up to them. She's had enough of it. She grabs them both by the collar and says to the two rascals, Don't you know there's a war on? Who cares if you don't have sugar? Who cares if you can't have your boiled egg for breakfast? Don't you know Hitler's planning to cross the English Channel? Go home, she says. Go home, pull your blinds down and dim the lights and be ready to fight side by side. Why should I pull my blinds down? Why should I dim the lights? Because there's a war on. There's a war on and Hitler is planning to cross the English Channel. So as simple as this might seem, the whole idea of a prayer, an agonizing prayer from Epaphras to the church in Colossae is essentially this, that they would believe and obey and be grounded in their union with Jesus Christ. That they would believe and obey and be grounded in their union with Jesus Christ. In other words, that they would get everything right about Jesus. Because if we get everything right about Jesus, then we will get everything right about everything else. So as you think these things through, so they'll glory in Jesus Christ and they'll put absolutely no confidence in the flesh. 
and they would glory in Christ and declare his salvation day after day in many sensible ways. So as we think these things through, listen, all the things we may be sure of in the eternal plan of God for us, his people, we can be absolutely sure of this, that God has promised to fashion every genuine believer into the image of Christ who is fully mature, who is fully complete, verse 12, and all the will of God assured fully of his father's plan, never to question it. So a person like Epaphras, he should get a verse 12, right? Every time he should get a verse 13, excuse me. I vouch for him. This is verse 13. He's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. In other words, he's a good man. And he's working hard for you. Now, as you think about these things, you can't help but to see that Paul is he's not interested in some kind of you know, dangling superficial conversations or some superficial relationships with these people. And he wasn't trying to lay down a few jokes to loosen them up and win their affection for himself. Paul cared deeply for them. And he would have his life interwoven with them for Jesus' sake. And that was the key, loved ones. What brought them together? Only the gospel of Jesus Christ. What will keep them together? Only that gospel in the work of Christ. That's the key. What will keep them together? Love? No. The Captain and Tennille, I don't know if you read this this week. I think they're getting a divorce after 39 years of marriage. It's sad. They sang the song, love, love will keep us together. Apparently not. The Beatles said, all you need is love. No, no. What do we need? We need to be in Christ. In Christ, all that stuff will take care of itself. Now, if you write a lot of letters like I do, you're always find yourself confronted with a reality that you you want to extend to the bearer of your letter just exactly what your true feelings are. You want to extend to them your very heart as you write to them. And Paul does this beautifully. He he sends all these greetings from his heart. I mean, you can't help but to see that as you consider these verses. But not only does he write with his heart, he also writes with his own hand. Do you see that in there in verse 18? Which takes us to our second point, faithfulness in passing on the letter. I mean, this is a terrific verse here, 16 and 18. You hate to even pass them over too quickly. You you ask yourself the question, why did Paul say that? Why did he say, I write this greeting in my own hand? Here's the answer. Certainty of authenticity. It was the custom in those days for a man to dictate his letter to a scribe. and And then as a sign of authenticity, he would sign it in his own hand. In fact, if you read the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, 2 Thessalonians, you'll see that to be true. And in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says this, chapter 3, verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. So, so what he does is he tells us right up front that he always signs his letters in a particular way. And even if he he doesn't say that in every book in the New Testament that he writes, the pattern has been established. Everybody knows this. When the thing is from Paul, he will sign it with his distinguishing signature. And we're going to learn that Paul will make these letters to be circulated to all the churches. But anyway, you ask yourself the question, why does Paul say that and why does Paul do that? Well, for certainty of authenticity, to cut off the tide of false letters from false teachers. Again, 
2 Thessalonians 2. We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter. Now think with me. Right after these letters go out and Paul is advancing in the gospel, you have these bad guys who would so quickly say something on the order of, hey, let's write a few things and say that Paul said them. And now you think about false teachers and you know the New Testament and we'll learn this in Jude. The number one motivation of every false teacher in the New Testament is greed. So let's write this letter and let's just say it's Paul saying this and Paul saying that and you'll get a crowd and you'll get some cash and here we go. So if you take that example and you move it to our time, we would say something on the order of like this. Not everything we pick up and read and not everything we sit and listen to, just because it has Bible verses in it, just because it has a few dramatic stories and uses the word Jesus a lot and says things like Jesus showed me and Jesus told me, that does not mean that it's true. That it's true to the apostolic faith and it's true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the, the dreadful thing about taking scriptures from everywhere and making it one sermon. No, listen to Paul. He wrote it in his own hand, his own greeting, to declare this is God's word for this context. And as God's people read it and hear it, explain, they might obey and they would be safe. They would be mature. They would be fully assured, right? They would not constantly question God's love. They would not constantly wonder about God's provision. They would not be doubting his love or doubting his privileges given at Calvary or shrinking from their responsibilities because of that victory at Calvary. You see? These things all make sense. So the letter was written from his heart. It was written with his hand, his, his signature, and it was written for the churches. And that comes to us by way of verse 16. And it's straightforward. After this letter has been read to you, Read, read it, read to you by way of authority, read to you because probably illiteracy in, in the first century world was large, so they needed this to be read to them. But the assignment is clear, isn't it? Verse 16, the church in Laodicea, modern day Turkey, they have a letter, when they're done, they're to give it to Colossae, when Colossae's done, they're to give it to Laodicea. This is the circulation of Paul's letters. Now we don't have a copy of this letter. A lot of ink has been spilled about what this letter is. This is what we know. This is what is certain. There was a letter written to Laodicea. It was to be read by both the Colossians and the Laodiceans. The bigger point is verse 15, Nympha, the lady who hosted a house church. So she would have this letter read in her house. Now, you can't, you want to just stop and say how, how wonderful what a wonderful lady she is opening up her home for Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that week by week by week having a church service in your house? She was like Mary, the mother of Mark, Acts 12, 12. She opened her home for the disciples, prayer, worship, hospitality. Um, she provided location for instruction. This was, was Lydia, Acts 16, 16. She was a very successful businesswoman and she had a ministry of hospitality. This is Gaius, Romans 16. Priscilla, 1 Corinthians 16. Where would the church of Jesus Christ be without all her ladies? All these ladies who came to this sensible conclusion. My home is not my castle. 
My home is given to me, my God. The doors are to be opened for my God and his people. And if the mission of Jesus Christ would somehow be strengthened because my doors are open and the home given to me for worship and prayer and instruction and hospitality, then to God be the glory. Let's get those doors open. And that's the mindset of all these ladies. Where would the church be without them? Now, as you think about these things, people say, well, okay, that means that the only true church is the house church. That was the only true church. And people have long dissertations and things like that. But as you look at the whole Bible, that is not true. The fact of the matter is this. When the church met at a home, it was either because there were so few of them that they could actually meet in a home, or there were so many of them and no space to accommodate them that they had to split up and meet in homes. So whatever it is, we don't know for sure, but this is what we do know as by way of a principle for the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. We gather together for worship, yes? We, we scatter for evangelism and we divide for fellowship, home groups, hospitality. Isn't that what we do? We, we gather together for worship. We scatter for evangelism. We divide for fellowship, for home groups, hospitality. And the reason why we do that, because we cannot do fellowship and exhort one another and, and encourage one another in a sensible, honest way by looking at the backs of one another's head for an hour and 10 minutes on a Sunday morning. I mean, isn't that true? You, you can't have much meaningful, needed fellowship in that time frame. So, so how are we going to accomplish this? And are we just going to chastise ourselves? No. We gather together for the worship of Christ. We scatter for evangelism, declaring Jesus Christ, and we divide for fellowship being in Christ. And we do it under the guidance of the Scripture. We, we don't freewheel it here. We embrace then that all God provides for his people. We, we embrace the advancing of his kingdom. We embrace the first two lines of the Lord's prayer. Isn't that true? The honor of Christ's name and the coming of his kingdom. That's what Jesus said. When you pray, say those two things right off the bat. We say, yes, this is a small but growing picture of Revelation 7. The great multitude that no one can count, that no one can number, standing before Jesus our King. You see, these are the important principles. This is why we say these things. This underpins everything we do. Now, before we move to our final point, as you think about these things, the cause of Jesus Christ owes a gigantic debt to those countless no-names, to those who volunteer to serve Jesus Christ, without whom someone like me would be utterly useless. Can you imagine taking out of this equation on the Sunday morning all the people who volunteer and just having me Besides the fact that it's a pitiful picture, can you imagine the chaos that would be here? We need men and women and young people serving Christ, and so many do. Think with me. The parts of our physical body that, that we usually give the most attention to, they do the least to keep us alive. The hidden things are the things that keep us going, and it's the same with the body of Jesus Christ. It's the hidden things. It's the no-names that keep the thing going and we'd be foolish I'd be foolish not to believe that but again because of the influence of our times we are tempted to say and to assume wrongly about who is important or who is capable in ministry and we look on the surface and we look for talent alone or we look for style and we say okay they're the ideal they look like they can do something really good for Jesus and those of you who are along in the faith you say what a foolish thing to say 
both Paul and Jesus. The scripture in the New Testament points this out and the Old Testament as well. It points out that Jesus and Paul were not much to look at. Isaiah 53, 1 Corinthians, they were unimpressive in their personal, I don't even know the word, when they just, you can know, just like right now, right? <laughs> unimpressive. So that all the power, all the power would know, people would know that it would come from God and, and not from themselves. Faithful in prayer, faithful to pass on the letter, our final faithful, faithful to persevere. Persevere until the given work is done. That's verse 17. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. Mind, be mindful, the, the letter is read in a church context. Everybody's going to hear this. Archippus, his name is only mentioned one other time in the New Testament. It's in Philemon. And Paul calls him a fellow soldier of Jesus Christ. Now we're not told what his work was. We are told how he was to do it. We are told that he was to faithfully fulfill it. And we are told that he received the work in the Lord. So listen carefully. The source of all ministry is Jesus Christ himself. The source of all ministry is Jesus Christ himself. The work belongs to the Lord. Archippus is only the steward. Jesus would be his final judge. That's 1 Corinthians 4. Now it's required of a servant who, who's been given a trust must be found faithful. So, so we ought not to think that Paul was just calling out Archippus to embarrass him. There is in this, because it was read into the churches, there was admonition, admonition for every man and every woman. This is the nature of Christian ministry, Christian. Listen, be faithful. It's not your ministry. Faithful, you receive this ministry from Jesus Christ. It belongs to Christ, given to you by his delegation. And so we must work hard to the very end. Now, as we get ready to close, some scholars think that Archippus might have been the shepherd, the pastor, or one of the pastors at the church of Laodicea. Now, why do I tell you that? What's the big deal? Well, listen to what Jesus said about this church and Revelation. To the church in Laodicea, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You see, being around Archippus for too long, slothful might begin to look normal, a false normal. Hence, Archippus, the source of your ministry is Jesus Christ. Archippus, the ministry that you have is sacred. It's a trust. It's received from Jesus Christ. Archippus, finish the work. And loved ones, it's the exact same for all of us here, beginning with myself. All of what we do is in the Lord. If it's not in the Lord, then we do it in vain. All ministry received from Christ, it's His. And we have to learn that ministry is not a sprint, but a cross-country run for the rest of our lives. Two quotes and we're done. Quote number one, Charles Simeon, 77 years of age, after someone said to him, slow up, slow down, get out. And this is what he said. Shall I not run with all my might now that I have the finish line in view? 
It is not sufficient for any man to run well only for a season. We must endure to the end. Whatever your attainments may be, and whatever you may have done or suffered in the service of your God, you must forget those things behind till you've actually fulfilled your course and obtained the crown. Charles Simeon, 77 years of age. This is Richard Baxter, 17th century. Oh, then let us hear these arguments of Christ. Whenever we feel ourselves grow dull and careless in His work, did I die for them? And will you not look after them? Were they worth my blood? And they're not worth your labor? Did I come down from heaven to earth and to seek and to save that which was lost? And you will not go to the next door or street or village to seek them? How small is your labor as to mine? I debase myself to this, but it is to your honor to be so employed. Have I done and suffered so much for their salvation and was willing to make you a co-worker with me? And will you refuse what little lies in your hands? It's not a sprint. It's a cross-country race for the rest of our lives. I love this letter to the Colossians. I thank God for it. I wish we could do it all over again. I thank God for all of you as well. My hope for you, verse 18c. Grace be with you. If the men who will be helping serve communion, if you would come forward and I'll just make my way down there right now. Our reading will be from Colossians chapter 1, verses 18, 19, and 20. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church. Jesus Christ is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything Jesus Christ might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through Christ's blood shed on the cross.